This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Taking your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? All those nights when you've got no lights, the check is in the mail. How many? television show theme songs can you immediately recognize within a chord or two this happens to be one i don't even need to tell you where it's from one aspect of television programs and or motion pictures that uh, i think people may not immediately recognize are the writers Right. I mean, uh, you see a movie star, you see a TV star, you know, hey, that's uh, that's the one from Friends or uh, you you've heard of a director. Oh, Steven Spielberg. Oh, he did Jaws. But when it comes to the writers, a lot of times they're not always as uh, front and center in terms of being as ubiquitous in terms of public recognition as some other aspects of the production are, when it can be argued that they are the most important aspect of a production. So as I've been rewatching Cheers over the course of the last year, I'm struck by a few things. One, how timeless the comedy is. Two, the incredible talent that is present in every level of the production. So I started to pay attention at who had written one, uh, some of my favorite episodes, and it turns out that the person, that were, the writing team, I should say, that was writing some of my favorite episodes was also responsible for some of my favorite episodes on other television comedies, Frasier, Wings, MASH, even The Simpsons. And it turns out that one half of that writing duo, Ken Levine, who's an Emmy Award winning screenwriter, a director, a producer, an author, is the host of a podcast which I have become a huge fan of. He's also kind of a renaissance man and seems to share a lot of my interest in both the fields of radio and baseball. And uh, I was thrilled when he agreed to come on the radio with us. Ken, it is great to talk with you. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Ken, and thank uh, you for recognizing the credits. It, it's you and my family. <laughs> now, uh, Ken, you've been a writer for a long time, uh, but the thing in doing a little bit of homework on you that amazes me about your writing career is not only the string of successes that you've had and the longevity of it in a in a field where uh, the uh, the uh, lifespan of a TV writer can often be measured with an egg timer. It's how often you seem to also be doing other things. I know that you were a DJ in the 1970s on a lot of major uh, radio stations in uh, California. You also were a play-by-play announcer in the world of baseball. 
How did you uh, balance being a radio DJ and a, and a writer? I know just doing these four hours on the radio, I can barely find the time to sleep, drive to work, and see my wife and son. How did you manage to pursue a writing career while also making a living as a radio DJ? Well, when I was a radio DJ back in the 70s, uh, that's, that's pretty much all I did. Uh, I'll be honest, I wanted to be Dan Ingram on WABC. <laughs> that was my original goal. And one of the reasons why I loved Dan Ingram was because he was so funny. Oh, yeah. But I sort of reached a point where I thought, you know, I don't want to be 50 years old still playing Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison. <laughs> uh, there has to be more to life. And I met my writing partner, David Isaacs. Uh, we're both in the same Army Reserve unit, and we decided to team up and try writing. And uh, and I quit radio and pretty much uh, concentrated on television writing for a number of years. And then I reached my mid-30s, and I had, you know, the old um, midlife crisis. And from the time I was a kid, I always wanted to be a baseball announcer. So I figured if I don't pursue it now, I never will. And so for two years, I'd be writing during the day. And at night, I would be going to Dodger Stadium with a tape recorder and sitting in the upper deck, you know, with all of the drunks and guys with the pinwheel hats and announcing baseball games. And uh, and then I sent tapes around. And so when you would do that, just like, I, doing, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt, Ken, but when you would do that, you, you were, when you say you would announce the Dodger games, you would just speak into a tape recorder while you were yes. in the stands? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and there people thought I was nuts. But, you know, that's the way you learn how to do it. So uh, So I got a job in the minor leagues. And my first year in the minors, it was great. It was 1988, and there was a Writers Guild strike. (laughs) (laughs) So I I didn't miss a thing. Uh, But after that, I would juggle uh, the two careers. I was working on Cheers, and during the summer, I would be writing scripts while announcing baseball. And uh, then uh, the season the baseball season would end just as the TV season would begin, and I would go back and, and be on Cheers full-time. Uh, and that's... when I did the majors, uh, fortunately, I was with the Orioles and the Mariners, and those teams sucked. So I never had a conflict in October. I never had to worry about that. It was great. You know, we lose 100 games. I know I'm going back on time. I'll tell you, I've always been in awe of uh, people that can make a a living in radio and pursue other things. I always felt this way about Jay Thomas, who, of course, uh, did uh, do Cheers for a time, how he could have this successful career as a a radio DJ and then still pursue acting and get a lot of great acting parts. I've always said the two most difficult things to do in radio are, one, get a job, get hired, and, and two, to quit because it's so difficult to get a job. So I give you a lot of credit for uh, pursuing uh, what I guess was a new dream while you had uh, all these radio jobs. Good for you. 
Well, thank you. But in fairness, I was fired. Ah, well, so, that makes it a lot so easier, number doesn't two it? didn't really apply. <laughs> uh, yeah. I ha- I, there's a number of uh, issues that I want to touch upon with you, including what you're doing now, which uh, which seems pretty interesting. But I have um, been a fan of Kirstie Alley for a long time. Unfortunately, we lost her recently. And I don't know that a lot of people, even people that were singing her praises uh, for her talent and for what everybody says she was such a good person, I don't know that a lot of people appreciate the difficult shoes that she had to fill when it came to replacing someone who was already an integral part of one of the most successful shows on television. And yet when she, when Shelley Long, who played Diane Chambers, left the program and uh, Rebecca Howe came in, played by Kirstie Alley, the show actually grew in terms of audience how was uh, Kirstie Alley able to pull that off and not have all the audience uh, throw popcorn at their television sets and say, oh, gee, we wish we, we had uh, Shelley Long back? You know, there was just something very likable about Kirstie. And you're right. Uh, it's like saying, uh, OK, replace Tom Brady. Go ahead. <laughs> Step in there. You know, take a couple of reps. Uh, but um you know, she like from day one, I remember our very first table reading with Kirsty. She shows up wearing a blonde Shelley Long wig <laughs> <laughs> and it put everybody at ease. Uh, she was just a lot of fun and uh, did not let it get to her. And interestingly, it took us a while to find exactly how to write her. Because when she started, if you see those first few episodes, the beginning of season six, she really is kind of a martinet. Mm. And it it just wasn't that funny. And then there was an episode where uh, she was upset about something and had kind of a breakdown and was hilarious. And we all looked at each other and we said, that's it. Have this woman who seems very together and is very beautiful, but is just a hot mess. Mm, And from then on, we found as many ways as we could to, uh, to make her life miserable, to make (laughs) Rebecca Howe's life miserable. And, uh, and she just responded and was so funny. Um, And you're right. You know, when you bring in a new character, it could kill the show but it could also jumpstart it a little bit, you know, because there's new stories and new relationships. And so in a way, it kind of gave the show its second wind. You you had observed something that I don't know that I'd heard anybody talk about when it came to Kirstie Alley's talents as an actress. You've said that she is one of the most entertaining comedic criers of any but one on television. Talk about that a bit, if you can. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think that that is an amazing skill, but to be able to cry and cry convincingly and yet do it funny is very difficult because most actresses, if they start crying, you're going to just feel sorry for them. And yes, you want to feel sorry, but you also want to laugh. Uh, to me, the best of all time was Mary Tyler Moore. Mm. 
But then number two was Kirsty, and we found uh, a number of places where we we made her cry as as our big block comedy scene, uh, and and she was terrific. And I was working on a another show, and I won't mention the show or the actress, but we had a crying scene with her and she just couldn't pull it off. And I remember standing on the stage, turning to my partner saying, Kirsty would crush this. <laughs> Kirsty would just kill with this scene. Yeah, it's a very unique skill that, that Kirsty had. In terms of her, what she was like off camera, You've said that uh, one of the things that was very evident about her is that she had a, a soft spot for children, and she was always very kind to children, including your own, right? Yes. Uh, my son was, I think, five or six, and there was the school raffle. So I brought him down to the set to guilt all of the people on the set to <laughs> buy raffle tickets <laughs> You know, for the kid. And he had his little spiel where uh, he said, if tickets are $1 and you could win a television set and it's for Warner Avenue Elementary and blah, blah, blah. And everybody was giving him a dollar. And he goes up to Kirsty, and he does his little spiel and she hands him a $20 bill. And he says, um, I, I, I don't have change for this. And she says, no, no, keep it. And my son goes, well, you might not win. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think she minded. One of the fun no. things as a, as a baseball fan that I uh, enjoyed about Cheers is that uh, occasionally you'd get a, a star athlete to come on the show. Uh, sometimes there's a basketball player, but it was always a real treat for me to be able to see a baseball player, including the one time that Wade Boggs uh, is, was on the show. What was the story with Wade Boggs and Kirstie Alley? Well, the story was Wade Boggs agreed to do our show, and he agreed to do it in – we were filming it in March, so it was like in the middle of spring training. And we thought, well, we're never going to get him, but we tried, and sure enough, his manager said, well, you know, you're a superstar. You could miss three days of uh, spring training in Winter Haven. So, uh, so I'm thinking, like, man – I have a lot of power. I mentioned Wade Boggs, and there he is on a plane. And uh, he came out, and he he did his thing. And then uh, about a year later, there was an article in Playboy magazine by a woman named Margot Adams. And Margot Adams was Wade Boggs' mistress, or (laughs) one of them. I, I don't know. But she lived in Anaheim. And she talks about that particular week, she said she got a call from Wade Boggs saying, hey, I get a free trip out to Los Angeles. I get a chance to see you. So, you know, I'm thinking, (laughs) yeah, I'm so powerful. That's why he came out to L.A. So uh, he apparently said to her, can I have a pair of your panties? Because I promised the guys on the Red Sox that I could come back with a pair of Kirstie Alley's panties. (laughs) (laughs) and so i'm reading the article it's the morning and uh and i go what time does the cast arrive as well they're you know filing in around now 
So I went down to the stage and I found Kirsty. I said, hey, you're mentioned in an article. <laughs> and I gave her the article because I wanted to see her reaction. And her eyes just about popped out of her head. She was like, are you kidding me? That's very she was a She was a really good sport. And it became a running bit between the two of us for like the next four or five <laughs> years. Like once or twice a year, I'd come up to her and I'd say, Kirsty, um, can I ask a favor? I'm going to my high school reunion. <laughs> and at my graduation, I promised the guys that I could have a pair of Kirsty Alley's panties. <laughs> you know, so I would do this. You know, uh, hey, Kirsty, listen, I've, I've got an interview to get my passport, and I told the guy that I could have a pair of your panties. But, again, she was just a really good sport about that, all of that. That is uh, terrific. We're talking with Ken Levine. If you want to hear more stories uh, from his time in Hollywood, uh, you could check out the podcast Hollywood and Levine. It's available on any podcast app. It's uh, it's really interesting, uh, sometimes very funny, but always very captivating. W- uh, was there any instances of diva-like behavior from Kirstie Alley? Did, you know, once some celebrities become huge stars, a lot of times that goes to their head. Did that happen with her at all? I can honestly say no, never. And I can't think of any crazy thing we asked Kirsty to do that she balked at. Wow. That, uh, yeah. That, no. That, they, that's... They, they, they loved her. Um, yeah. She was extremely easy to work with. I don't know what she was like on other shows, but on on our show, she was the ultimate team player. And she knew her lines, and she was there every day for rehearsal. You know, there was really never any drama. And we were all very relieved because ah, there was a lot of conjecture that once Shelley Long left the show, would Cheers be able to survive? And, uh, and it, it certainly did. And by the way, again, this is not to take anything away from Shelley, because I think the first year of Cheers, uh, it would not have gotten picked up were it not for Shelley Long. And she had, in my estimation, the single toughest character to play ever on a situation mm. comedy, because she had to walk such a fine line you know, to be uh, condescending and intellectual. It'd be so easy to hate her. And yet she still has to be kind of vulnerable and you still have to sort of root for her. And uh, like I said, that was just walking a tightrope. And Shelley just did it magnificently. Wow. Uh, I definitely, just as an observer, not someone that worked with them, I would certainly agree. Uh, she was unparalleled with that performance of uh, playing Diane Chambers. Kirstie Alley did live next door to David Crosby, who we also yes. lost recently. I, I, did you actually get to meet David Crosby at some of these Kirstie Alley Halloween parties? I, I did, because Kirstie Alley would have these mega Halloween parties and Easter parties for all of the kids. And uh, one day David Crosby's standing there like, what? <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I got a chance to, to talk to him for God, about half hour, 45 minutes. And I was a kid that grew up in LA during that era. Mm. So to talk to somebody who was really part of that whole 
Sunset Strip scene and Laurel Canyon scene. Um, it was it was great. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine. I can imagine it must be. You are, along with uh, Mr. Isaacs, responsible for I think about forty episodes of Cheers. Some of my favorite, uh, some of my favorite episodes of the entire series. And uh, when you watch, when you go back now and watch these episodes, I think by and large the comedy still definitely holds up. <laughs> Sammy, 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 look, I've got a simple solution to this whole problem. You see, you just go up to the guys and politely ask them to leave. I mean, right. everything is back to normal. Right, right. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Sam would never do that, would you, Sam? Oh, no. I'm not sure. I mean, these guys are my regulars. If I lose my regulars, I lose my bar. And if single women stop coming in here, I have no reason to live. That's one uh, instance where maybe it would be a little different in 2022 as they're arguing about how to handle two potentially gay men in the bar. I realize this might be, you know, an unfair question, the equivalent of asking, you know, which of your children is your favorite. But if you had to pick either an episode that you've written or that someone else has written, if you had to pick your all time favorite Cheers episode, what would it be? Well, uh, for sentimental reasons, I guess, there was an episode that David and I wrote called uh, To All the Girls We Loved Before, and it was Frasier's Bachelor Party, which most people know as the one where Frasier says Wang Chung. But the, the great thing about that episode was usually for a half-hour television show, you write a very detailed outline because you only have so much time. And uh, we went to the creators, the Charles brothers, and said, we want to do something as an experiment. We want to just write a show with no outline at all. We want to just have bar talk and see where it goes. It's Frazier's bachelor party, and he has second doubts. And by the end of the episode, he just to go through with the marriage. That's the whole story. And we just want to see where it goes. And they had enough faith in us to say, okay, do it. And uh, I'm proudest of that particular episode. Hmm. Uh, that is uh, that is a great episode. And it's interesting to know the, the backstory. You also wrote uh, several episodes of Frasier, including episodes that uh, that featured a lot of the old Cheers cast. I'm sure you've heard this before, but if you go down the list of the best TV spinoffs of all time, it's usually Frasier and Star Trek The Next Generation that are one and two, depending on who's making the list. But they're always both in the in the top five. There are a lot of people that uh, that believe that Frasier is actually even more entertaining than Cheers. How do you react to that idea that Frasier is one of those rare instances where the spinoff might have even been superior to the progenitor. Well, first of all, you had a great star. Usually when you take a second banana from one show and make him the star, uh, I'm thinking Matt LeBlanc of Friends. Sure. Uh, it, they're second bananas. They can't really carry a show. Kelsey Grammer could carry a show. And then the planets lined up. Uh, The creators of the show, who are all former Cheers writers, Peter Casey, David Lee, and David Angel, 
um, knew how to how to write him and knew how to write a show. And the casting was amazing. You know, we had a casting director, Sheila Guthrie, who came in and said, you know, I just saw a tape of a guy and he might be interesting as the brother. And originally there was no brother in the pilot script of Frasier. And they saw a tape of David Hyde Pierce and said, oh, yeah, okay, let's include him. That's great. So, you know, the planets have to line up. It's like, what if David Hyde Pierce is not available that year? (laughs) You know, Uh, what if John Mahoney is is not available? Uh, So, uh, you know, a lot of things had to come together. But um, yes, and uh, some of my favorite episodes of anything that David and I have written uh, would be a couple of Frasier episodes. I've observed in radio partnerships that it can be very difficult to have even successful radio shows. Any radio partnership lasts a long while. Egos get involved, creative differences get involved, uh, different disputes over topic selection or who gets to book guests and this kind of thing. So much of your writing career has been with a partner, David Isaacs, and, and clearly it's worked out really well for you. We see it in the finished product, but it worked out well in that you've continued to do it on so many different shows and in um, even even a motion picture. What is uh, I would think writing is such an intimate, personal medium that it could be sometimes very challenging to do with a partner. How do you compare writing with a partner like David Isaacs as as opposed to writing solo by yourself? Well, when you write with a partner, you always have someone to pick you up when your car is in the shop. <laughs> so, you also have somebody to go to lunch with. Uh, but no, seriously, in comedy, it's uh, it's helpful to have somebody who you trust uh, that you can bounce ideas off of. And I think for us, our work habits are very similar. Our sensibilities are similar. And uh, we we get into arguments over the script and the story and that sort of thing, but it's never personal. And, you know, we can argue uh, tooth and nail about a certain story point and then say, okay, it's noon and go out and talk baseball and, and have lunch. Uh, when you're writing by yourself, though, the one thing I will say that I enjoy about writing by myself, because I've now written a number of plays by mm-hmm. myself, is that I don't have to run anything by a partner. I can just say, huh, let me try this. And I don't have to convince anybody. And, I, and I'll try it. And if I like it, good. And if not, I can, I can throw it out. But um, it's certainly more fun writing with a partner. It's, it's more social. And the other thing, you know, when you're writing with a partner and we get together from 10 in the morning until five, and then at five o'clock we go home, I put it out of my mind. You know, it's like we're done for the day. There's nothing I can do. When you're writing by yourself, you're constantly going, oh, do I really want to go to a movie tonight? Shouldn't I be writing? You know, Uh, but I got very lucky uh, because I found a good partner. We 
we'll be partners 50 years wow. uh, this October. That's incredible. Yeah. And we still talk to each other. It's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> that is incredible. And uh, y- your daughter, I know, is um, a pretty successful writer in her own right. I guess she was smart enough to avoid the radio aspect of your career and just dive headfirst into writing. Yes, I, uh, I-, I landed on that grenade and spared her <laughs> of that. But yeah, my, my daughter, Annie Levine, and her She's got a partner who's also her husband. Now, I don't know how the hell they make that work, but they are currently the executive producers of The Upshaws, which is on Netflix, starring Wanda Sykes and Kim Fields and Mike Epps. That's terrific. I haven't seen the show, but uh, I've heard nothing but but great things about it. Even the New York Times liked it. We're talking with Ken Levine. You can check out his podcast, Hollywood and Levine. And uh, Ken, there's a lot of folks listening in Baltimore on WCBM, where we're being heard as well, that are still smarting from your reminder that the early 1990s uh, Orioles never had to worry about getting to the World Series. But I am curious about your observation on the nature of baseball and the nature of radio. Uh, Radio was such an integral part of baseball's growth in this country in terms of fandom. And every week, I feel like I read a different article uh, about either radio or baseball, all with the same uh, basic premise, which is that the listenership or the fandom of either of those mediums is older and it's aging and they're struggling with how to continue. Do you think the I hate to use the term, but decline in radio as an entertainment medium, as an information medium, has played in at all to the decline of baseball as a spectator sport. Oh, I definitely feel feel that's the case. You know, look, radio, uh, I mean, I hate to say this, I'm on WABC and all these other radio stations, but uh, talk to young, young people don't even know what radio is. You know, they they don't know the concept of radio. When I was eight years old, every night I listened to the Dodgers uh, on my transistor radio. You know, I listened to Vin Scully and, and I kept the radio under the pillow uh, so that, that I could hear it. Uh, radio was was magic. But now there's every game is on television and uh, you can go on websites, and uh, you you just don't follow baseball the same way. And it's too bad because baseball on the radio had a lot more personality, and it was a lot more fun. Uh, Ernie Harwell, who was the longtime mm. voice of the Detroit Tigers, uh, asked he was asked once the difference between doing a game on TV and on radio. And he says, on radio, nothing happens until I say it does. (laughs) I can relate. Um, Tell me about on the first day of Christmas. What what is that? Uh, That is a play of mine that has been performed several times and it's going to be a reading of it in L.A. this, this weekend. Uh, You know, you try to get comedy plays slotted in various theaters, and it's very hard because a lot of times theaters don't want to take a chance with uh, a play that the audience doesn't know or a playwright that the audience doesn't know. But they always have a holiday slot open. 
So I figured write a really, really funny holiday play and get into some of those slots. And if the audience responds, then the theater is open to doing Mm. Uh, other plays. And so far, uh, it's worked out that every theater that has done a production of On the First Day of Christmas has done a uh, another play of mine so, down the um, line. If we do have some listeners in L.A., where is it playing this weekend if people want to check it out? playing at the Westchester Playhouse uh, Sunday night. Oh, all right. free. That's yeah. Hey, that's, if people can't even ask for their money back, it's a great strategy. Uh, hey, Ken, I've enjoyed the conversation very much, and uh, our mutual friend Doug McIntyre made me promise to say hello to you. So I'm going to pass on his <laughs> hello. I hope we can chat again soon. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you. And I think uh, Ken's time in baseball certainly influenced his work on one of my favorite Simpsons episodes, which he happened to write, Dancing Homer. Damnation. These banjos couldn't carry Pie Trainer's glove. Big Bill McCloskey coming up. As soon as he pops out, we'll go right to the postgame show. Come on! All we need is a grand slam! My one game of the year, ruined by pathetic incompetence. What's wrong with you people? Let's show some spirit! Come on, get up! Your team needs you! Come on! As I got up in front of them, I felt an intoxication that had nothing to do with alcohol. It was the intoxication of being a public spectacle. There's some nut down in right field dancing up a storm. He's really got the crowd going. Let's see if it can shake up mediocre slugger Big Bill McCloskey. Swung on and belted to deep left field. It's going, going, it's gone, it's out of here. Oh my God, the Isotopes win a game. The Isotopes win a game. The Isotopes win a game. Wow, that was certainly exciting. Yes. Unfortunately, Homer Simpson's shameless display of exhibitionism tainted the entire evening. I want him banned for life from all company outings. (laughs) The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.